everybody. He's risen. Nice. Now we know who the church people are. We've identified you. Good job. Uh, if you're new, my name is Marshall. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we're really glad that you're joining us. Uh, and if you're joining us online, we're really glad that you're here as well. Uh, today is a very special day on the Christian calendar. It's a day where uh, Christians in the vineyard, at least, reveal themselves as very fake Christians. If you come back next week, they will not look this good. I can promise you that. They'll probably be a lot later to service as well. And you know it because all of the back dwellers have been forced forward when they came a little bit late today. We know who you are. <laughs> all right. So on Easter Sunday, Christians are celebrating what we believe to be the single most significant moment in all of history, the day when Jesus of Nazareth came back from the dead. As, isn't that, I mean, like if you pause and you think about it for a moment, that is an extraordinary claim. And if it's true, what would it mean for us here 2,000 years later in America? And so this morning, I want to just take a little bit of time to talk about this claim, not merely assuming it. I'm pretty sure that most of us are at least aware of the fact that Jesus, uh, that, that Christians claim Jesus rose from the dead, whether you believe it or not. And maybe you are here today and you are not a Christian. Or maybe you're here today uh, as a bit of a questioner or a skeptic. And maybe you were dragged here by your mom or your spouse or you were invited by a neighbor or coworker. And maybe you grew up with some kind of faith, maybe you went to like some kind of church thing when you were younger, but then you walked away later in life, in college, or when life circumstances didn't turn out the way that you ho had hoped, and you just gradually felt like God was harder and harder to accept. But underneath the surface, often, for most of us, there's like a gnawing sense that there has to be more to life than this. And the claim that Jesus makes to us is that I am the resurrection of, and the life. And this is who Jesus is, and this is the invitation that he extends to us. And if this, is, this claim is true, then what would it mean for you today? So this morning, I want to look at three questions uh, as quickly as possible. First, why does the resurrection matter? Second, why do Christians believe that the resurrection of Jesus even happened? And then three, how can I actually believe? Like, can my doubt lead me to a place of faith? So the first question that we want to answer is, why does the resurrection matter? Why is it so important that Jesus came back from the dead physically and not just sort of as a great idea? Why can't we just accept his teachings as a good way to live and then move on? Why did he have to come back from the dead? I am going to let one of my all-time favorite movies explain this first point. Go ahead and take a look. Yeah. Are you afraid of death? Yeah. Me too. And there's no way out of it. You're going to die. I'm going to die. It's going to happen. And what difference does it make if it's tomorrow or... 80 years, much sooner in your case. Do you know how fast time goes? I was six, like yesterday. Me too. I'm going to die. You are going to die. 
What else is there to be afraid of? For all the children under 30, that was a movie called What About Bob? And it's like a classic. It's been pointed out to me that every Easter I take time uh, out of my busy schedule to talk about death in front of children. I'm very sorry. But the first reason that the resurrection of Jesus matters is because all of us will one day die. And I'm sure that you all got up early this morning and got dressed up and got the kids into the car just to be reminded of your mortality. But seriously, think about it. You will one day die. In fact, you are, you are dying right now. You are one breath closer to the end. And now you're another breath closer to the end. And we all come to these moments when we're sort of face-to-face with this inevitability. And in my experience, everyone becomes something of an armchair theologian whenever someone they love dies. Because they have to. And when we come together in these funerals, and I'm a pastor, so I'm often uh, dressed in a suit, and I'm sort of a person that people come and ask questions of, people share with me their armchair theological theories. And it's a lot like probably what a doctor feels like when people talk to them about acai berries. (laughs) Interesting ideas. And people who live their lives in complete denial of their mortality are forced in that moment to come up with answers when, they, when they're face-to-face with ultimate reality. The idea of non-existence is terrifying. And every parent of small children has had some experience uh, where, where an older adult uh, tells them that this phase of your life goes by so quickly, like you blink And your children that were just tiny little babies in diapers are suddenly graduated, they're off to college, and they're adults, and they're out of the house. And it happens just so fast. And when you are a parent of small children like I am, it is very difficult to wrap your mind around that idea when you are in the thick of changing diapers or running kids to soccer practice or going to band concerts. And in the same way, the Bible tells us that this life that we lead, that we all assume is just going to keep going, and none of us want to face the end of, that this life is but a breath, that in the larger scheme, each of us are here for a blink, and then we're gone. And even if you live a life that is long and full, and you accomplish everything that you set out to do, and even if you died totally successful with family and friends surrounding you as you pass on, it still feels too short. Death still feels unjust. All of us will one day die, and we would be fools to not consider what that means, to consider what comes next. And so Christians believe that the resurrection of Jesus is important because it speaks to our most universal human concern. Is there anything beyond this? What happens when I die? And the resurrection of Jesus says to us that death doesn't get the final say that there is more to this life, and that there is something beyond it. And it says to us that this Jesus, who claims to be the resurrection and the life, really means what he says. Which brings us to the second reason that the resurrection matters. The resurrection of Jesus is central to the Christian faith. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. 
In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. We are more pitiful than any other people. If Jesus has not been raised, we are pathetic and this life doesn't matter. All that we have put our trust and our hope in is useless. Here's how uh, pastor and author Tim Keller puts it. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The Christian faith literally hinges on this claim. All of the big claims of Christianity rise and fall on whether or not Jesus got up out of the grave. You see, Christianity doesn't seek to just make death a little bit less painful, and it doesn't just seek to make death a little bit more meaningful. Christianity's claim is that death no longer has the final say. Death has been defeated. More than this, Christianity says that the sting of death has been overcome by a force that is even more powerful and even more universal than death, which is the universal, constant, never-ending, bottomless love of God for you, for me, and for all people. Somehow the brutal death of Jesus by Roman crucifixion is a statement of the unrelenting, pursuing love of God for you. And so those who put their faith in Jesus are invited to experience eternal life today. And Jesus defines eternal life not as some blissful experience someday when you die. No, eternal life is defined by Jesus as a relationship with God. It's living a new kind of life where you can know God and he knows you and it starts today. And if this is true, I am convinced that this is the best news on offer in human history. Seriously. And when you consider the power of the statement, even if you doubt it, it's only because it's got to be too, it's too good to be true. It's unbelievable because this news is just too good. Every wrong I've ever committed against God or others can be forgiven and wiped away. The penalty and power of everything, wrong, everything I've ever done wrong can be overcome by the personal love of God through Jesus. It's just too good to be true. I was uh, getting my hair cut this week uh, on Good Friday, actually, and apparently uh, every pastor gets their hair cut on Good Friday. Um, and I was talking with my barber. She doesn't believe in Jesus. Um, she actually strongly doesn't believe in Jesus. And I, I just asked her this question. Um, I said, have you ever experienced what it feels like from your family, your friends, your community, even some notion of a higher power, have you ever experienced what it's like to be totally and completely known and unconditionally loved for who you are? And she stops cutting my hair and her eyes get misty and she says, maybe my dog? <laughs> and I said, no, not even your dog. Um, <laughs> And so this news is not just the best news on offer. It's the most important question that we have to grapple with. Uh, author C.S. Lewis famously wrote this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Which leads us to the second question. Why should, why should we believe that the resurrection happened? 
And the answer to this question is because there really is evidence that supports the claim of Jesus' resurrection. See, contrary to most people's uh, belief, popular belief, Christians are sometimes thoughtful. And we don't just live our lives with blind faith where we check our brains at the door every time we approach the Bible. No, there is actually compelling evidence of what Jesus claimed, uh, of Jesus' claim of resurrection actually having happened. So let's consider some of the evidence. There are a few common modern objections or theories that seek to refute Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And I don't mean to be dismissive of them, but I just want to point out I don't believe that they're historically viable. The first and most common theory put forth is referred to as the swoon theory. And this explanation is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but rather uh, towards the end of the day, he passed out. He was mistaken for dead. He was put in a tomb, and then later he woke up and he came out. And this theory misses the newer scholarship that shows the effectiveness of Roman crucifixion in putting someone to death. There is no historical account of anyone ever having survived crucifixion. The Romans had mastered this method of execution. And if a Roman soldier failed to put somebody to death, then they themselves would have been executed. There were consequences for such a failure. And and then we read in the Bible that before Jesus was ever even put on the cross, he was flogged. He was beaten with rods. He had massive thorns shoved into his scalp. He was... uh, uh, He was whipped with a cat of nine tails, which was so devastating, it would be like being shot at close range with a shotgun. Many people would not have even survived what Jesus endured before he got to the cross, much less the cross itself. And then after Jesus was pronounced dead, we read that he was tightly wrapped uh, with 70 plus pounds of burial spices. Then he was laid in a cave that was covered by a giant boulder with Roman guards standing around it day and night. So the swoon theory posits that after enduring all of this, Jesus woke up after three days with no medical attention, no food, and no water. He unwrapped himself, rolled a giant boulder out of the way, fought off Roman guards, appeared to his disciples, and said, (coughs) I'm back. (laughs) The second theory is the stolen body theory. It's that Jesus' body was taken by his disciples. And, um, and this was the theory that we read, the Jewish leaders of the day were explaining to the crowds is what happened. But this theory really underestimates Roman guards, and it way overestimates Jesus' followers. Because if a Roman soldier was to lose the body that they were guarding, they would be put to death. They would not let this happen without a serious fight. And similarly, or, or I said oppositely, actually, the disciples were total cowards. They were chased off by the questions of a teenage girl. They were hiding away in a locked room. And so there is no way that these guys would have mustered the courage to go to the tomb, to hope that some guards fell asleep, to quietly move a boulder and to sneakily steal away a body. Another theory Uh, uh, is that the so-called witnesses to the resurrection uh, were delusional and just under a mass hallucination. Now, I do not personally have much experience with hallucinations, but when I look across this room, I can see that there's plenty of experience here. Um, (laughs) I'm coming in a little hot on Easter. I'm sorry, guys. It's been a morning, okay? And the problem here is that hallucinations don't work like that. Hallucinations are private individual experiences. They're not shared by groups or crowds. And yet the testimony is that many people all at the same time, even entire crowds, saw the resurrected Jesus all at once. And then the last common theory is known as the twin brother theory. 
that Jesus had a brother that looked just like him or maybe some other lookalike who was accidentally crucified in his place, but it wasn't the real Jesus. It's basically the plot of the Christopher Nolan movie, The Prestige. Spoiler <laughs> alert. And, so, and this, this theory is really common in, in the Muslim community. And the issue with this theory is that Jesus' closest friends and even his family members, his own mother, stood at the, at the base of the cross looking up at her son who was dying, and that they were witnesses of his death and his resurrection. Now, it's easy for anyone to be able to like, take somebody else's theory and poke holes in it. But what supports our claim? Is there any evidence for why we believe that the resurrection of Jesus happened? I mean, one of the first things, this may sound a little bit obvious, but I think the most compelling piece of evidence that Jesus raised from the dead is this. The tomb was empty. There was nobody in the tomb. And there is a mountain of documentation from first century historians confirming this. There are more historical manuscripts pointing to not only the life of Jesus, but of his death and resurrection than there are historical manuscripts that support that Julius Caesar ever even existed. And so the resurrection would have been so easy in the first century to disprove. All that you would have to do is produce a body, which no one was able to do. Secondly, we believe the proof of the resurrection because of the way the story is told. That if you wanted to fabricate a lie that would start a movement, this is not the story that you would come up with. In the gospel accounts, the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection were women. And in the first century, women, women's testimony was not even admissible as evidence in court. And beyond that, one of the women that was a witness to Jesus' resurrection was a woman named Mary Magdalene, who had earlier been described as one who had seven demons cast out of her. So imagine if you're a first century person hearing this story. Hey, did you hear... Did you hear about Jesus? Did you hear how he, Jesus got up out of the grave? Mary Magdalene says she saw him. Yeah, you mean like the Mary Magdalene who had all those demons? Yeah, her. She said she saw him. Right. I'll bet she did. Like not the most trustworthy of witnesses. And the only reason that the story is told the way that it is is because that's how it really happened. And finally, like consider what happened to the followers of Jesus. Seemingly overnight, these men who went, went from total cowardice to boldly preaching and leading a movement that threatened the Roman Empire and were eventually executed by the state. Now, I believe that every person who calls himself a Christian ought to have some answers for why they believe in Jesus' resurrection beyond blind faith or just hope. But I also would say that there is a burden of proof on those who reject the claims of Jesus' resurrection to explain what happened on that first Easter Sunday that changed the course of human history. And I want to humbly extend that question as an invitation to each of us. What do we do with the claim of the resurrection? Now, I believe that there's compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus but for skeptical people, often the issue isn't that they've carefully examined all of the evidence for and or against and considered and come to the conclusion that this just could not have happened. Much more likely, you may, have just, may, you may just have doubt that no amount of evidence would be able to change. And, and if that's you, let me tell you, you are not alone. Not all of Jesus' disciples even had immediate changes of heart when the women came back testifying that Jesus came, from, came back from the dead. 
One guy, one of Jesus' closest friends, is infamous for his doubt, a guy named Thomas. And this is what we read in John chapter 20. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Crazy story, right? And skip down to verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. So on the day of Jesus' resurrection, he appears to his friends who were locked away in a room. And Jesus somehow comes through this locked door, and the first thing he says to them is, peace to you. And the disciples were amazed, and they couldn't believe their eyes. So Jesus says, look, it's me. Look, I've got the, the, the scars from the nails right here in my hands. Look, I've got this hole in my side. But one of these disciples, Thomas, he wasn't there for that encounter. So when he got back to the room, the other disciples told him what they had seen and how, how great this news was that Jesus, their friend, had come back from the dead. And look at Thomas's response. He said, unless I see the, hand, the, the marks of the nails in his hand, which is totally reasonable, right? Like the other disciples had just seen the marks in Jesus' hand. But Thomas goes further. And I also want to place my finger into the marks in his hand. And I also want to shove my hand up into the wound on his side, which is a little gross and pretty weird, but whatever does it for you. He says, I will never believe. I will never believe. You see, Thomas is not a skeptic here. This is not passive. This is an active doubt. It's a resolute choice to not believe. He says that even if he saw with his own eyes what the other disciples saw, he still would need more evidence. He would need to personally touch and experience the wounds of Jesus for himself. I will never believe. This is doubt. And this is a doubt that required a certain kind of evidence. Thomas didn't want to believe. He was settled in his doubt. And I'm sure that there are many in this room who find themselves here in the same place this morning. We find ourselves doubting for all kinds of different reasons. And we often think of ourselves as doubting because we are too rational to believe. But usually our doubt is much more personal. Maybe your doubt is more connected to feeling let down by God. Like you prayed for your mom who had cancer and hoped that she would get better and God didn't heal her. Or if God is so good, then why did my spouse leave and destroy my family? Or how could I ever believe after that so-called Christian treated me or somebody that I loved the way that they did? Sometimes our doubt just simply comes as a gradual drift over time, ignoring the way and teachings of Jesus, and your faith just starts to slip through your finger like sand. For Thomas, his doubt was rooted in the intense pain that he had just experienced in the loss of his friend. He was experiencing despair that led to doubt, which led to skepticism, which led to cynicism that was rooted in fear of ever having his heart broken like this again. Thomas said, I will never believe. I will never let this happen again. 
And it seemed that Thomas needed hard evidence of Jesus' resurrection, but what he needed was personal evidence. He needed an encounter. And look what we read in verse 26. It says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and this time Thomas was with them. Eight days later, consider the timeline. Jesus let Thomas stew in his pain for more than a week. And imagine what that week was like for Thomas. Do you think that the other disciples ever stopped talking about what they had experienced? For more than eight days, Thomas was hiding in a room with a bunch of delusional disciples who would not shut up about seeing the resurrected Jesus. Eight days later, Jesus shows up on a Monday. Okay, not at some big church service. He didn't go to some conference. There wasn't some giant gathering out at the outskirts of town. It wasn't while Thomas was climbing a mountain looking for a spiritual experience. It was just another Monday. And this is what we read. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In this story, we read that Jesus shows up for Thomas and invites him to experience him just as Thomas said that he wanted. That Jesus actually meets Thomas on his own terms. And Thomas, in this moment, is stunned. But notice that Thomas never actually puts his finger in Jesus' hands. And he never actually puts his hand in Jesus' side. What Thomas needed more than evidence was a personal experience. And so we may think that the barrier to faith is the need for more proof, for harder evidence, but your heart actually aches to experience the love of God for yourself. And if that is true then doubt can actually be a gift. Because what we see here is that Jesus shows up for doubters. Jesus isn't afraid of your doubt. In fact, he will use your doubt to lead you to a place of encounter. Doubt is so much more powerful than indifference. And maybe you didn't grow up in a house where faith was taught or assumed. Maybe you came this morning with real, deep, challenging questions I just want to say, we are so glad that you're here and you are not alone. Jesus doesn't lead us around our doubt or away from our doubt. He leads us through it so long as we are willing to continue on the journey. See, Christians are not people who ignore their doubt. And, and I want to say that, that even if you've been a Christian for a really long time, you are not immune from these seasons of doubt. And that's okay if you go through them, even after you've been a Christian for a really long time. We're not afraid of that. Christians are not, simple, are those, Christians are not those who have simply committed to just a specific belief system. We know that Christians are people who have personally encountered the resurrected Jesus and responded as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't come to us demanding cold, impersonal, irrational faith. Jesus longs for and is drawing you into a relationship with him, one that is personal and that is real. And the cross is a statement of God's love for you. Jesus goes to the cross to die in your place for your sins so that you can experience true life in relationship with God. 
And I know that that sounds too good to be true. It sounded too good to Thomas as well. And Jesus was raised from the dead so that you wouldn't have to die in your doubt, but so that your doubt might lead you into an experience with him. And so the invitation this morning, my friends, is to come and experience Jesus for yourself as the resurrection and the life. Amen? Amen. Happy Easter. Will you stand with me?